The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey church, as we get closer to Christmas, I just want to remind you that we are doing Project Christmas again. I, I believe this will be our 11th year to do Project Christmas. It's simply doing Christmas a slightly different way. We ask each family to have a conversation amongst themselves to maybe buy one less gift per person and instead donate $50 per person in your home to Project Christmas. That allows us as a church collectively to usually raise around $50,000 that we then spend the entire next year pouring every dime of that back into the local community, loving on people, supporting our local mission partners. It's an incredible way for us to be for our community, and it takes honestly very little for you, but you have to have the conversation, and you have to decide to engage in Project Christmas. So we would love for you to do that. You can give online. It's very simple. Just make sure you market Project Christmas, and every penny will go to help our local mission partners and our community. Today, we're in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Here's what's happening. Jesus is going to walk up on a mountain, and he's going to reveal himself in the most amazing way. And he's going to do so primarily because of what he has just said. And it's taken us a few weeks to get through these passages, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Jesus has informed his disciples He is not going to go to Jerusalem and sit on a throne and reign as king. He is going to go to Jerusalem. He is going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the elders. He's going to be arrested, and he's going to be crucified. He's going to die. And then three days later, he will rise again. But he needs his disciples, his followers, to understand this. What you think is about to happen is not going to happen. What you think your life is all about right now is not what I'm asking of you. You're not going to get to reign and rule with me on this earth. In fact, what I'm going to demand of you, we talked about this last week, what I'm going to demand of you is to lose your life here on this earth so that you might find it, that you might gain life abundant and life eternal in heaven with me. It costs you everything here, but the reward is incredible. And as you can imagine, that's a very difficult message to receive. So I think what Jesus does next is he gives three of his disciples a glimpse, a glimpse into the future so that they possibly can start to process why he would be talking like this. So we begin in Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. It'll take us a minute to get through these, but but here's what verse 28 says. About eight days after Jesus said this, everything I just explained to you, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray, okay? So of the 12 disciples, he takes three, Peter, James, John, his inner three. These have been a very specific group already in his ministry and will continue to be. They were the first disciples who were called by Jesus. He went to them First, they were always, every time there's a list of the disciples in the New Testament, they are listed first. They were the only ones who got to go into Jairus' house when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead back to life. They were the only ones who got to see that. Peter was the one who made the confession of faith first. James and John were the ones who would hear, we'll see this in a few weeks, would argue for position 
to get to be at the right and left hand of Jesus. They don't understand it, but they assumed those would be their seats. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll get there in about a year in the Gospel of Luke. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it was those three that Jesus took a little further in and said, pray with me. And on this day, eight days after Jesus said this, he takes those three specifically, leaves the other nine behind, and he takes them up on a mountain. Now, it doesn't say what mountain they went up on, but it does say in the Gospel of Mark that it was a tall mountain. So there's a couple options here. Number one, and this is the traditional mountain that most people think, it's Mount Tabor. Here's the problem with Mount Tabor. It's only 1,900 feet tall. It's not even a mountain. So it's unlikely that Mark would call that a tall mountain. That's a hill. Anyone who's lived in Poto like me knows that 2,000 feet makes a mountain. Anything under that is just a tall hill. Mount Hermon, that's the tallest mountain in the region, almost 10,000 feet. That's a mountain. But that is miles and miles out of the way. Probably not where they went. Instead, I believe it was Mount Myron. Mount Myron, almost 4,000 feet, definitely a mountain and directly in the middle of Palestine, the tallest mountain in Palestine. So I think that's where this happens. Jesus takes his three disciples, his three closest friends, and he says, hey, we're going to go have an experience together. And here's what happens. As they were praying, setting up camp, hanging out, verse 29, as they were praying, the appearance of his face, that's Jesus' face, changed. His clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, I always ask you to put yourself in the situation. I always ask you to allow yourself to be in the narrative. Three guys on a mountain will find out in a moment that they'd been up on top of the mountain for a while, and in Jesus' normal fashion, he's having a long time of prayer with the Father, and the other disciples had already fallen asleep, and they're awoken to something as brilliant as a flash of lightning. I mean, we live in Oklahoma. We've all seen a flash of lightning when it's real close, and it's the thunder that pops us, but it's brilliant, and it's bright, and that's what Jesus' clothes were shining like. His face was glowing. This is something huge that is happening. What's happening, actually, it has two terms. It can be called a theophany or a Christophany. It's really, all it means is this, when the glory of God is revealed on earth. This has already happened once in the New Testament. When Jesus was walking on water, he approached the boat and he said he was going to pass them by. And they looked out and they thought they were seeing a ghost because Jesus was glowing and he was revealing his divinity. But this one, this one's even next level. This Christophany is Jesus showing his glory on earth. Why now? Why on this random night on top of a mountain in Palestine would Jesus decide to do this? Well, he's trying to show a select three people. He's trying to show them that he will be glorified in his death. He's just told them, I'm going to die. And now they're starting to second guess. Well, is is he really the one? Is this really who we're supposed to be following? And he's going to show them, absolutely yes. Because in my death, 
In my death, I will be vindicated. In my death, I will be victorious. In my death, I will be glorified. And he's giving just these three guys a glimpse of this amazing moment. This event had such an impact on Peter's life, okay? Had such an impact that he used it as a reason, a defendable reason why Jesus was the Son of God. In 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, here's what he writes. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we actually were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We got to see it. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter records this event in his letter to the church and says, Hey, I got to see something that... Not many others got to see. I know that he's the one because I know that he's the one. His clothes were brilliant. His face glowed. He was glorified right in front of me. And if that were not enough in this encounter on top of the mountain, now two more very noticeable figures are going to show up. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. Two men, Moses and Elijah. You don't get bigger than that in the Old Testament. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Hey, Jesus, when are you coming back? Man, heaven's been a little empty without you. We're, we're, we're excited for your return. When do you think that's going to happen? which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, about's a very general term. It'll be a year from now before Jesus returns to Jerusalem and lays down his life. But these two men appearing on this mountaintop and having what it seems to be just a very casual conversation with a glowing Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they, they get to see this. But why Moses? Well, Moses was the ideal prophet for this. He represented the entire Old Testament law. He, he's the one who gave it. He's the one who received it. I mean, it, it's, it's his. So he represents that. Elijah was known to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would come before. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. We're not going to read that, but you can just take that note. Elijah, everyone thought he had to come back before the Messiah would be revealed. He represents all the prophets. Jesus embodied both of these men. He was the fulfillment of Israel's past, the law, and the hope for Israel's future. Jesus was the embodiment of both of them. And here's another thing. I can't prove this, but both of these men, Moses and Elijah, had unique, non-fatal ends to their life. We know for a fact, Elijah, because 2 Kings 2 verse 11 says that he was taken up in a whirlwind, some say chariot of fire, but he was taken up. He didn't die. He just got to go straight to heaven. No death. He just got to go. Moses, a little different, but, but I want to read Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. This is what we know, what we know for sure. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab. So it says he died, but look at this, as the Lord said he would. 
He, the Lord buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. And that has led many scholars to hypothesize that where he's buried was in heaven because the Lord just took him. Can't prove it, don't know it. But you have two men showing up on this mountain on this night in front of Peter, James, and John who had unique end-of-life experiences. And now they're just chatting with Jesus. Well, why were they the two? I think these guys were both vindicated in their death. They had hard lives. What God asked them to do on his behalf was not easy, and God rewarded them in their death, just as he will do with us. But they got a special reward and the transfiguration, that's, that's what it's called on the mountaintop. The transfiguration shows that God will do the same with Jesus. That his death will seem untimely and unfair, but he's going to do something great with it. He's going to change the world with his death. Now, in completely normal Peter fashion, he should have learned at this point to keep his mouth shut, but he just can't. He just can't. And in Luke chapter 9, verses 32 through 33, here's what happens. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. Okay? They had been sleeping during the prayer time. But this awoke them. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. They saw the glory of the Lord Jesus and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, so they missed a good chunk of it, but now they're like, oh, this, we're not dreaming? We're not, we're not sleeping right now? This is really happening? Holy moly. Okay, I, oh, and oh, Moses and Elijah, whoo, I heard about them. Oh, but now they're leaving. They're walking away. As that was happening, Peter said to him, Master, Master, Jesus, wait, wait it's good for us to be here. No joke. You're getting to see something incredible. It's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. We're going to give one to you, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. And then I love this. Luke adds, he did not know what he was saying. I love that. It's like, you're a moron. But I get it. Peter's like, they're leaving. Oh, no, what can I do to get them to stay? Uh, we'll, we'll build you a tent. We'll build you a tent. Just like tabernacle. Just, just like out in the desert. Moses, you remember that? You were, you were out there for 40 years, remember? We'll, we'll, just, we'll, we'll pitch up a tent, and you need to stay. It, this is good. This is good stuff that we want more of. And I, I get it. I get it. But Peter is missing the point. The point wasn't for Moses and Elijah and Jesus to hang out for a few months. The point was actually for them. The, the reason was for them to get to see something great. Now, Luke chapter 9, verses 34 and 35. While Peter was speaking, describing this little tent community he's going to set up, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid, but, but they entered the cloud. Anyway, they were afraid, and then a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son. Well, there's only one voice that can say that. It's God the Father. This is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. Now, those words are almost identical to the words that God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism, except for that last phrase. This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. 
hey, Peter, shut your mouth. He's already told you what's going to happen. And he's giving you such grace right now that you get to be a part of something that no one else will ever see again until my son returns in his full glory. You're getting a glimpse of that right now. Please shut your mouth. Stop standing in his way. Stop trying to take these situations and make them about you. And just listen. He's telling you everything you need to know. He's telling you everything that's going to happen. And he's going to be counting on you big time when it does. So just listen. Listen. I can't imagine how many times God has set in heaven in majesty complete power, control with love and kindness and looked at me and said, Todd, just shut your mouth and listen. You've got all these ideas. You you think you know what needs to occur. But I, I know better than you because I'm God. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen. I'll tell you exactly what you need to do, but you got to close your mouth, man. I know you're excited and I, I know you love me, but sometimes you just need to listen. And here's the aftermath. Luke chapter nine, verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. While they're in the cloud, Moses and Elijah snuck their way back up into heaven. Super cool. We don't even know how they did that, but it's super cool. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Now, you might think that's ridiculous. Why would they do that? Mark tells us why they did that. Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 10. As they were coming down the mountain, okay, you talk about a mountaintop experience, So on that hike back down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You you don't get to talk about this. That was just for you. That was God's grace for you. You don't tell anyone else. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing amongst the three, Peter, James, and John, what rising from the dead meant. Eight times, eight times in Jesus' ministry, he tells someone to be silent. Seven of those times, the people that he told to be silent immediately went and told everyone. This is the one time, this is the one time where we see and know that what had happened on that mountaintop was so crazy, so unbelievable, and with the command to be silent, they just discussed it among themselves. But the discussion shows us shows us they still didn't get it. Risen from the dead, what what is he talking about? He can't die. He's the son of God. What what does he mean? This this is just too much. They, They actually missed the whole point. And a year later, I can't imagine Jesus' frustration when he looks back and goes, what more did I need to do for you? What else could I have done to demonstrate that everything I'm talking about is all good, I'm in control, and my glory and my glorification will come through my death? What more do I need to show you? It will take some time, but eventually the disciples will understand. They will understand that the way to victory 
for the Messiah, for the Son of God, is through death. That they will finally get it. Glory is through a cross. The way to eternal life is to lay down your own life and choose Jesus. They will get that, and they will take that message to the ends of the earth. The same message that we today take to the ends of the earth. The purpose of this passage is for the disciples to understand that death is the only way. It's the greatest way. But it makes me wonder how often God has to extend grace to me because I don't understand what he's doing. How often does God extend grace to you because you think you know and and you think you know what's best and, and then when this hurt comes or this loss or this misfortune or this even majestic moment comes and you go, yes, this is what I need. I just, I need all of this all the time. And, and then God just goes, no, 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 no. That hurt had a purpose. That loss, as hard as it was, also had a purpose. This misfortune, this moment, this majestic moment, it all has a purpose. But I need you to trust me. I need you to allow me to be God and for you not to be. I wonder how often God has painted the clearest picture in the world for me, yet my own presuppositions, my own thoughts, they they get in the way of seeing what he's trying to teach me. I expected you to do this. I thought you'd promise that. And he goes, no, you're, you're just, you're bringing into this relationship presuppositions that don't belong. I've got you. I've got this. You need to trust me. For today, this transfiguration moment was for those three disciples to know that Jesus' death equals life. And that is an imperative truth that we need to still hear today. His death equals life. Yet that life that he provides comes only when we ourselves die to the sin, to the selfishness that so pervasively runs our lives. That's when we find it. Jesus needs us to get this. Jesus will demonstrate his power in your life. If you ask him to do so, he will reveal himself to you through prayer and his word. When you ask him, God, show me what you're doing in my life. Ask him and he will reveal himself. He will invade your life with his presence, his power, and his peace. But he won't make you believe. The Mount of Transfiguration wasn't enough for those three disciples to get it, to believe. He won't make you believe. He'll give you everything you need to believe, but he won't make you do it. That has to be your choice. And so today, I pray you see God for who he is. I pray that you trust him. He's given you everything you need to do that, but it's your choice. Don't be like Peter, John, and James who had it all laid out for them so clearly and chose to allow their own doubts to get in the way. Choose Jesus. He is the way to life. He is the Son of God. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the recording of this story. And may it be for us what you intended for it to be for Peter, James, and John. 
May it be a window into your plan for our life. May it be a window into how you are using your son, Jesus, to glorify him and yourself, but to also bring us into relationship with you. May we place our faith in you. May we love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.